You're listening to the Faculty Podcast. In this interview, Adrian Piccoli discusses ways your child can get the best out of school. I chose to write it because I'm a former education minister in a, in a, in a very big jurisdiction in, in Australia. So I'd, I'd had six years really embedded in education. But secondly, and probably most importantly, is I'm the parent of two young boys. And what I realised was that even as a minister for six years, talking education uh, 24 hours a day virtually, there was so much as a parent I didn't know about what happens in schools. So I thought I'd take this opportunity to write a book to try and bridge some of that knowledge gap about what parents really want to know about what's happening in schools and indeed the best way that they can help their children get the best out of school. Certainly the attitude that children take to their learning is really critical in terms of their performance at school and and that attitude is almost entirely driven by their experience with um, with their parents, with their friends, with their with their family and the community that they that they live in. I mean why those expectations and why those attitudes towards education matter so much is because what's really important is what's a child's frame of mind at nine o'clock or whatever time it is when they turn up to school in the morning. If they have a positive attitude towards education, if they value it strongly, um, they are going to be in a position to gain so much more out of their experience at school. And as I said, that's driven largely by the experience that they have with their parents. If parents speak positively about the role of education and its importance, but even if parents didn't have a positive experience at school, and many didn't, they can talk about, they could certainly talk about um, how they would have liked to have had a, a positive experience in school. So I think that's a really big, that's a really big issue. What, what sort of attitude the children have about education and the value of, and the importance of education. Secondly, um, giving children a strong um, experience in education before they start school. So certainly the value of um, the, the value of early childhood and their experiences before they start school. So things like, I mean, preschool or long daycare or, or, or whatever they might have the opportunity to attend before they start school. But again, what happens at, uh, what happens at home before children start school? Exposing children to lots of conversation, lots of complex conversation or as much as possible. Um, as stress-free an environment as possible and sometimes in the modern world that can be difficult but as stress-free uh, as, as possible. Those kinds of positive experiences before children start school are really important and making sure they've got those foundations uh, before, they, before they start school. Again, all the evidence around the world says that's really important to determine not just how they do in the first few years at school, but actually determines how they do even after they finish school as, uh, as, uh, as teenagers and, and young adults. And the third thing is, trying to raise the expectations of students in terms of how they actually will perform at school I think is a really critical is a really critical factor and again backed up by research around the world now, if, if students have high expectations of themselves if parents have high expectations of their of their children if teachers and schools have high expectations of their students then we know that students are more likely to do to do better than if they don't have those high expectations they can be difficult to set because we don't want to create unnecessary stress. 
But we do want to send the message to children that not you have the potential to uh, to you have the potential to to do well. Uh, we, we want you to do as well as you possibly can, uh, and setting those expectations and, and having children believe in their own potential uh, are, is really critical. So I would say uh, those three of many are probably the most important. When, when choosing a school, and uh, I, I, looked, I looked at this myself uh, when my children started school, is to look at the closest school, look at the neighbourhood school. I mean, going to school with uh, other children from the neighbourhood is a good social uh, and community thing to do. But if it's not your nearest school, some of the other things that parents should look at are certainly is certainly the reputation of schools. Now, again, we have to be really careful here. Don't believe what you read on social media. Don't believe what you hear over the back fence uh, from neighbours because some parents do have bad experiences with schools and there can be good and, and, and bad reasons for those um, unfortunate um, altercations. Um, but they shouldn't define a school. What you should be looking at, what you should be doing is, is talking to a lot of people, a lot of parents um, whose children already go to the schools you might be looking at, uh, and to get a, a feel for how that school, um, the reputation of that school and the attitude of, of, of parents and others uh, towards that school. But secondly, nothing really beats going into that school, meeting the principal, hopefully meeting some staff, uh, and getting a feel for the culture of that school um, as well. Uh, it can be it can be difficult, but the more time you spend at a school, uh, talking to the principal uh, and others in the school, asking questions about, you can ask detailed questions about um, um, the nature of the of, of staff. Are they is there a mix of um, you know more senior and uh, more senior and experienced teachers? Is there a mix of junior staff? You know, coming in with sort of fresh ideas. Uh, particularly around you know using technology and, and all of the kind of the new stuff that's that's out there in education, that's what you kind of want to look at. I think is a mix of staff. Are staff generally happy? Is the culture of the school one of uh, a positive culture? Uh, are they focused on academic? Are they focused on sport? Or is there a nice balance between the two? And, and obviously adding music, art, and and, and other cultural uh, pursuits into that mix. They're the kinds of things, and I think every parent should be aware that there's no silly question when it comes to choosing a school, whether you're asking another parent or you're asking the principal of the school. The more you know about the school, you, you know your child well, you know what you, you, you know what you want out of the school for them, and, and, and hopefully you know what they want out of the school, particularly in the high school students. Uh, but the more you know about the school, the, the more closely you're going to be able to align the type of school they, they might go to with actually what your, what your children need. And there are certainly cases where people have twins or even triplets and they go to different schools because the children, whilst they're t- twins or tri- triplets, they have different interests and, uh, and those interests are served by different schools uh, and that's a completely legitimate decision to make. NAPLAN is the national testing system that's used in, in Australia. It's, it's done every year for year three, year five, year seven and year nine students. It's a test of literacy and numeracy skills, pretty much literacy and numeracy basic skills. Um, parents in Australia do get uh, quite anxious about it. Schools get anxious about it. But I, I would say to parents, there's only a, there's a couple of fundamental things that parents need to know about NAPLAN, and they should not get stressed about it. Uh, one of the one of the issues, the important issues, is there's no such thing as, as failing um, your, your a child failing their NAPLAN test. 
And that plan test for a school is where where the school is actually just assessing where a student is up to in, in literacy and numeracy. It's one of the tests they use. It happens to be the, 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 the national test that every student in the same year does. But remember, schools are doing tests all the time, every week, every second day. They're doing little tests here and there just to see where students are up to. So NAPLAN fits into, fits into the calendar of a year like, like every other test. It's just one example, one, one assessment of where a student is, is up to. And again, it's not pass or fail. It's like when you go to the doctor and have a, a cholesterol test. You don't pass or fail a cholesterol test. It tells you what your cholesterol is. And if it's, if it's a problem, um, the doctor will hopefully tell you what you need to do uh, in order to bring that cholesterol down. Uh, if it's not a problem, the doctor will say, hey, you know, you're progressing well, keep going, keep, keep staying healthy. Same with NAPLAN. When you get those results back, if your student, if your child has weaknesses, um, hopefully your school will be able to identify them and put in measures that they can target to actually improve some of those weaknesses. And then, of course, they'll identify strengths, and it'll be a matter of you know keep going uh, and keep reinforcing those strengths. So there's no pass or fail. It's one of many tests that students do um, throughout the year. The only other thing I'd add about it that parents need to know is. Looking at the My School website where those report, where those NAPLAN tests are reported online is a very bad way to judge whether a school is a good or a bad school. So I wouldn't rely on the My School website when choosing a school. Um, I would look at the individual results when you, when you as a parent get the results back about from your child's NAPLAN tests and have a look at where their strengths are and where their weaknesses are so you know and then you can also work with the school I particularly target those areas of weakness that your your child might have. Uh, high expectations are tricky to set because they're really important. It's important that students have confidence in their own um, their own ability or their, their their own ability to influence their results, but at the same time not causing stress. So we don't want to be saying to children, "You must get 95 in that exam, otherwise I'm going to be really angry." That's a very poor way of setting high expectations. A better way to phrase that might be to say, you know what, I think you are capable of doing really well in that exam. I think you're capable of getting a really high score, even higher than 90, but um, there are some things you're going to need to do in order to, to achieve that. You're going to need to you know, concentrate. You're going to need to work hard. You're going to need to do your homework. You're going to need to um, uh, you know, work closely with your teachers um, you're going to need to you know, set time aside to, to do further study. If you do all of those things, then you have the potential to do really well. Why, why that's important, other than saying, I think you're really clever, therefore um, you're going to do really well, is because um, cleverness is, is an innate thing that you kind of can't do anything about. So if that child doesn't do very well, they might think, well, actually, I didn't do very well, um, therefore, there's nothing I can do about it. Whereas some of those other things I talked about, like um, if you set time aside, if you um, concentrate when you're at school, if you do your homework, if you do this assignment, if you really you know, work hard at this assignment, they're actually things that, that children do have some control over. And again, they're decisions about that, that they make about their time. So they have some control over the outcomes that they're trying to achieve. Uh, and when we sort of couch... Um, potential and, and, and expectations around things that 
that students have control over, then then their outcomes are actually determined by the decisions that, that they make. Now, I think you're capable if you do all of these things. Uh, and um, and, and when, when students you know, do some of those things, they will actually achieve to their capability. Um, and then if they don't, or even if they do, as a parent, you can come back and say, okay, let's have a look at the result and let's have a look at whether we could have done anything differently um, in the last couple of weeks to change that result. You know, maybe you didn't put as much time into it as you could have or you know, maybe we, we could, uh, you know, next time you've got a test, maybe we can change some of those things. So it's really important to focus on the things that children have control over uh, because then the power then rests with them to influence their results. But to say, I think you have the capability to do X, Y and Z if you do A, B and C probably the best way to set those expectations and, and to set them high without causing stress. Well, disappointment is a fact of life and, I, and I, I think it is true in the modern world that we as parents, and I say this of myself, we try and, um, we try and help our children avoid disappointment. But the best time to learn about how to manage disappointment is when we're at school because school is where you get multiple opportunities to, to, to try again, you know, whether it's an, an exam or an assignment or sport. Um, school is the best place to learn how to handle disappointment. So all children will face a disappointment of one sort or another when they're at school and it's not something to dismiss and just say, oh, don't worry about it. It's not something to get, certainly not something to get angry about. It's an opportunity to teach children about how, A, how you handle it emotionally and, uh, and, and secondly, what do you do to actually avoid disappointment in, in the future? So if somebody is disappointed about a result they got at school or, or something on the sporting field, you can say, okay, let's have a look at what happened in the lead up to that. What could we do differently to have changed the result? I mean, that's a really important lesson for children. It's an important lesson for adults. I don't think we as adults do that enough. Um, but if we're teaching children to do that at school, uh, I think that's really important. It's a really important lesson for parents to reinforce with children. Teachers try and do that at school, but I mean, again, they've got you know 20 or 30 kids to deal with. They try really hard to do that at school. But when you're at home, you know, the biggest influence on children is their parents. And when parents are reinforcing that message as, as to children, uh, the more likely they are going to learn it. And when they face disappointments, major disappointments in adult life, as we all do and will, then they're going to be much more capable of dealing with it. Parent-teacher interviews are really tricky because I find them tricky too. I've written a book about them, but I still find sometimes getting information from schools can be can be tricky. So I, again, from the feedback I've 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 I got from principals, from teachers, from parents, from experts in the field, there are there are essentially five questions. One is, where was my child last time we had a parent-teacher interview six or six months ago? Where were they? Is, is the first question. The second question is, where are they now? And we're talking about particularly academically here. Um, where, where are they now? Are they where they should be? So given their age, or given their, where they are in school, are they actually at the place where they should be? Are they, are they yeah, you know, have, have they learnt currently what they, what, they, what they should be doing? And then thirdly is, what's the next stage of their learning? Because this is where parents can really help. So if we as parents know what our children know at the moment and what's the next thing they've got to learn, when you're at home, we can help them actually, we can help the schools do what they're doing 
which is getting get them to the next stage of learning. So if it's a primary school child and they're at a certain reading level, um, and you know that six months ago they were at a certain level, now they've now their levels improved, and the next stage of that improvement is whatever it might be. Okay, now we know what sort of books we should be reading with our kids at home. Not too easy, not too hard. The right level to get them to that next stage. Really important. Look, the same applies at a more complex level for the high school students, but it's really important to know is where they are and what the next step is. And then the, then the other two questions are around their own um, well-being. You know, I think all parents want to know, does my, is, does my child make friends well? Do they have a good group of, uh, of friends? Do they have a good peer group? And then the fifth question is, uh, are they happy? Are they happy? Are they, how's their personal well-being? And I think if, they, if, you, if parents can get a good answer out of those five questions in a parent-teacher interview, I think that they're doing really well. I would always recommend that, um, that parents have a look at the um, national guidelines. Uh, so the guidelines um, in Australia are on the Commonwealth Department of Health uh, website. Um, they do change as we learn more and more about screens, but certainly for children under the age of one, it's zero hours. Uh, um, uh, for teenagers, it, it certainly it gets to be more than that, but it's about two hours a day. But we, you know, the, the, that's, uh, that website keeps getting updated. Different countries around the world have different recommendations. But I, I think what we know about the impact of screen time now uh, in 2020 is probably what we knew about cigarette smoking in the 1930s. Um, we knew that we knew that there were going to be there were problems. It's not probably great that people do too much of it, but we don't really know the long-term consequences on brain function, particularly for young children. Um, we don't know the socio and, and emotional uh, repercussions of of excessive screen time and 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 the impacts of social media, etc. We know that there are consequences. Some research, early research, is is, is certainly pointing in a pretty you know harmful direction. But uh, I think we'll look back in 10 and 20 years' time and, uh, and think, gee, we, we probably should have done a lot of things differently uh, back in the 2010s and the 2020s, particularly about how much screen time we let very young children have. So I try and limit screen time for my children pretty severely with varying elements of success. It's really difficult as a parent, but I think parents really have to. To, to stick to you know pretty strict guidelines, uh, I think rather to be pretty safe rather than sorry in the future. But being bored is actually good for everybody. Um, now we're doing this interview in the middle of the coronavirus lockdown globally, and whilst the consequences of that are very serious in terms of the health consequence and certainly deaths, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, the lockdown is in itself going to be an interesting social experiment across the world where people are actually required to stop for a minute, or I shouldn't say a minute, weeks, months, uh, at home, staying at home, um, with family. And, and actually, there are going to be long periods of boredom. And again, the research already says that within the children, boredom is important, and boredom for adults is important, because it's actually when your brain has time to think um, unstructured thoughts. Um, some of the most creative minds in the world, some of the most important creations have occurred when, when, the, when, when the creators have said, you know, I was bored and my mind was just throwing bits of information together and, you know, it's coming up with new ideas. So I think it's really at the heart of 
creativity is when your is when your when your mind is not being when your thinking is not being directed by something else, particularly not a screen. Um, and I think the research is is, is pretty clear that um, not ha- constantly being having your attention taken by something else is good for your good for your brain, good for your well-being, but also good for creativity and uh, uh, and, and all of the benefits that come from uh, uh, from allowing your brain to be creative. <laughs>